Welcome to the Well Workplaces podcast, where we have authentic conversations with health and wellbeing leaders that are on a mission to inspire healthy change in the workplace. I'm your host, Tom Bosner, and today's episode is proudly brought to you by Pinnacle Health Group, Australia's leading corporate wellbeing provider who are on a mission to deliver 5 million health experiences globally. And I'm joined today by special guest, Melissa Doman. A little bit about Melissa. Melissa Doman is an organizational psychologist, a trained therapist, and a mental health at work specialist. She uses both her clinical and organizational psychology experience to inform her practical and solutions-focused approach. Having worked with companies and leaders to equip them to build their skill set, mindset, and behaviors required to discuss mental health, mental illness, and stress at work. She's consulted international organizations and Fortune 500 companies across industries and some brands that you might know, including Estee Lauder, Salesforce, Siemens, the NHS, and the Independent Publishers Guild. And she's also been featured as a subject matter expert in global conferences and various publications. And if that's not enough, finally, Melissa is the author of Yes, You Can Talk About Mental Health at Work, Here's Why, and How to Do It Really Well. And I'm holding the book right here. This is a great book, Melissa, and thanks for sending it to me before the show. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. It's so nostalgic and wonderful chatting with you because I lived in Melbourne in 2006 and dying to get back for a visit. And uh, you're really doing me a favor just so I can listen to you talk for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. That's great. I feel, it's, it's nice to feel like I'm achieving something simply by talking. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, thanks so much for sending the, your book to me just prior to the show. I got it last uh, Thursday and it's been a really great read to talk about all the different aspects of mental health at work. And I'm at one part one through, and I've got a really good sense of how this is going to play out for me as the reader, but it really feels like you're talking to me and it feels like a bit of a guide on how we can talk about mental health at work. And I feel like by the end of reading the book, I'm going to feel like I'm really well equipped to have more conversations at work with my peers and also, you know, with, with other people that own businesses as well. So, um, yeah, well done on that. Well, thank you. And the best part now is when you read the rest of it, you'll hear my voice yakking at you. So I wanted it to be easy to read and easy to use. There's plenty of information out there on strategy and data and the business case and the ROI, but no one was telling people how to develop the skill set. They were building all this awareness, but then there are people, did you ever see Talladega Nights with um, Will Ferrell? It's yeah, kind of like yeah. in the media interview where he's like, I don't know where to put my hands. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's basically the globe. They're like, well, how do we do it? And I just wanted it to be accessible, easy to read, not too academic, but still data supported. And I'm very happy to hear it has landed as such. <laughs> yeah, well, it fe- it feels, as you said, it, there's, there's studies and data and things to back everything up, but it's obviously yeah. a bit more personable and it, it reads, well, maybe it just really speaks to me in the way that it's, it's written out. And obviously to put a book together like that, there's a lot of work. I'm wondering, uh, Melissa, we might start with, I guess, a, a really simple question. Mental health in your terms, what, is, what does it mean? For you and how do you explain it when you when you're talking with companies what's it all about so mental health means a lot of different things to a lot of different people in a lot of different places so i really take the really the biological and the medical route 
The brain is an organ like any other organ in the body. It is a health state, health state, a stress state, and an illness state, just like your heart, your stomach, your sexual organs, your skin, your bones. And mental health is your baseline social, emotional, and cognitive functioning. Full stop. That's what it is. Every human being on the planet has mental health. Animals have mental health. The problem is where people start confusing it between mental health and mental illness. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But honestly, that's how I look at it is I go, guys, it's just an organ. And we're talking about the different health states that it has. And people go, oh, that's so true. Because when you just start getting all of the noise away from the definition and take it down to brass tacks, that's what it is. The health, stress, and illness state of that organ, the social, emotional, and cognitive functioning, not to be confused with mental illness. Yeah, that's that's great. Thanks for summarizing that. And and as as you said that there, that's exactly how it's kind of been spelt out in the, in the start of start of your book. But it's kind of a nice why it's simplified. Well, it's not really simplified. It's that's just what it is. But by yeah. simplifying it, it really reduces the noise because there is exactly. a lot of discussion around mm. mental health, or there has been for the last couple of years, especially. So it's really nice to sort of yeah clarify it like that. You mentioned mental illness, and of mm-hmm. course stress and and sometimes all of those things get you know wrapped into one another and then it's branded something else like mental yeah. you know mental health and fitness and all this sort of stuff could you sort of maybe let's let's classify or let's talk let's distinguish yeah. mental illness versus mm-hmm. like stress can you can you do that for me as long as you promise i will go back to mental fitness and what i think about it <laughs> which you will also discover in the book. So mental illness, also called a mental health condition or mental ill health, is a diagnosable clinical condition where you have a certain number of symptoms happening at the same time for a certain duration of time that impacts your cognitive, emotional, you know, intellectual or social functioning. So this can be a whole range. The DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, has over 300 diagnoses, okay? So the thing is that what most people don't realize is most mental illness is very high functioning. So what that means is that people are in relationships, they have kids, they manage their finances, they hold down a job, they have friendships, they travel, they do all these hashtag adulting things. And they still manage a mental health condition. So for example, major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, any type of addiction, personality disorders, PTSD, anorexia. I know those those are some of the the most well-known ones. What folks don't realize is that the the picture of mental illness they've been given as they're growing up is an teeny part of it where they take the most extreme version that will make you pay the most attention. Do those people exist? Absolutely. Are they the average person you're going to run into with a mental illness? Absolutely not. And so in the before time, as I like to call it, pre-pandemic, one in four people around the world would experience a mental illness at some point in their life. The data is now showing, unfortunately, that number is going to increase. And I would bet money, unfortunately, that in our lifetime, it's going to become one in three. I want to be wrong, but I don't think I am. And it is just, oh, it's the next epidemic is, is an epidemic of mental illness. And when it comes to stress, what people don't realize is chronic stress is, is not 
a mental illness. Chronic stress is basically, well, let's take a step back. Stress in itself is quite neutral. People say the word stress and they automatically think it's negative. That's actually not true. Stress is when you encounter a stimulus that requires response. That's it. There's good stress and bad stress, yeah? So the problem is when you have too much, it starts negatively impacting. Imagine like a Venn diagram back when we were in school where stress is in the middle portion and the two circles are mental health, mental illness. Stress can impact mental illness and it can impact mental health. But people need to understand that chronic stress itself is not a mental illness diagnosis. However, chronic stress left unmanaged is a pretty slippery slope and you can develop a mental health condition, albeit, you know, temporary, long-term, you know, there's so many factors that go into the development or sustaining of a mental health condition, uh, all of which are detailed in the book. Yeah. Wow. So mental, mental illness, you mentioned the roughly 300 condition, different styles of conditions. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty significant, isn't it? And also the, the statistics of your expectations of where that, those, you know, one in potentially getting to was, so it's one in four currently or pre pandemic and it's potentially moving into the one in three. Yeah. That's pretty crazy stats. You don't want to be, um, yeah. Like obviously there's been a couple of years of, of stress and chronic, you know, of a chronic nature for a lot of people. So yeah, that all sort of fits into a bad, like a, a bad concoction of, uh, of factors driving mental illness, perhaps. Um, I mean, I just call it a giant dumpster fire, but we could also call it that. <laughs> I love that. That's great. That's great. And I, and I guess as well, Melissa, like if you think of those, that giant dumpster fire, as, as you mentioned there, <laughs> within this uh, dumpster fire, perhaps one of those factors is, is the workplace or, yes. you know, the factors that, that drive stress or, you know, those extra, those stresses. With mental health at work, what do you, like over the time, over the period of time being the last 10, 20 years, obviously things, obviously things have changed in that particular environment. We, we probably didn't speak about, we probably used to separate our work and yeah. our home life a bit. Um, what's, what's changed in the workplace in your, you know, from your perspective? Well, it was always an important conversation always, but then just before the pandemic, let's say a year, two years, people were all of a sudden realizing, oh, Maybe we really need to talk about this because the world seems to be going in a trajectory that's not so great, which every generation says, but this is pretty bad in terms of the global things that are happening. And maybe it doesn't have to be so scary. You know, the data is there, the ROI case is there, the business case is there, the human, it's just the right thing to do case is there. Maybe we should talk about it. So there's a lot of toe dipping before the pandemic. And I was the one who was like holding their hand as they were testing out the water. Mm. And then the pandemic happened and most businesses were like, oh my God, this is urgent. We need to do it right now. And keep in mind, there are still businesses who are like, I'm good, hard pass, don't want to mm. go there. And a lot of people vote with their feet and quit those businesses if they had the luxury of looking for a new job. Some people don't. And so what people are realizing now is that it's not a nice to have. It is a must have. We cannot fictitiously partition 
oh my gosh, my mom would be so proud of me using all my big SAT words. I was going to say, that's a, yeah, I wouldn't be able to say that, those two words together if, <laughs> even if I tried. That was impressive. Do it again. Fictitiously <laughs> partition. Even my husband would be impressed. <laughs> so it's just a bunch of nonsense because you use the same organ, the same brain to live your life and do your job, don't you? So people are realizing that it was just completely unsustainable. And now that the world was just literally and figuratively burning, mm. I say literally because we were watching with horror what was going on in Oz, what was that, last year? Mm. And people are realizing, God, this is so urgent. We cannot survive what is going on in the world without talking about it, not only socially, but the place that we spend 40 to 60 hours a week dedicating our lives. So the way I look at it now it's not just well-being. It's not just DEIB. It's not just accessibility. This is critical skill development and conversational literacy as best practice in the world of work, period. And it needs to be shown as such because unfortunately, we still encounter people that when you say the words mental health or well-being, their eyes glaze over. But then, in my opinion, the way to talk about it that is irrefutable is this is critical skill development and the people are like, oh, now I'm listening. So it's it really needs to be seen that way as a core part of professional development. Because if you don't have any modicum of an idea of how to talk about this in 2022 in the world of work, you are screwed. Mm. You need to you need to have the basic language and the basic nomenclature and the basic understanding of what we're talking about. And if you don't, that is intentional negligence on your part. If you have access to the information. Now, we're not taking into account cultural factors. There are plenty of countries around the world who are nowhere close to opening these sorts of conversations because the cultural rules don't allow it. Mm. That is a totally different story. So, for example, the way we talk about it in Australia, the UK, Canada, uh, the United States, which is not a great picture of mental health, as we all know. And uh, But then you look at places like Kenya. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, um, Chile, you know, there, there are other countries who are on their own journeys and the urgency is up against the cultural rules and norms that are for some millennia old. So it's not the same journey for every country or even the same region with different regions and countries. And there are lots of factors that will impact whether or not a business, an industry, a country thinks that this is important in the workplace. And that's why in the book, I talk about those outside of work factors, because it can't just be as simple as we need to talk about mental health at work. Well, what if the reality you have is different from the reality I have? We can't ask people to perform the skill set without taking a peek behind the curtain to see what they're coming to the table with. You can have all these wellness Wednesdays in the world. And if you don't acknowledge these influences behind the scene for these discussions, it's not going to do shit. Yeah. There's a lot of, I guess there's a, um, in conversation as well at the moment over, well, where I am in Australia, there's obviously that, that thing of like, and it's really, it makes a lot of sense. If you have a webinar on well-being or meditation, your assumptions there are that firstly, people want to listen to you. Secondly, people, everyone wants to come and also the message that you're supplying is going to resonate with every person, even though there's 30 people in that, in that, uh, scenario, all coming from different backgrounds, but you know, with different life experiences as well. So 
you know, there, there are a lot of initiatives out there that, that aren't necessarily improving skill development and really hitting things where they need to, you know, improve. So from your experience and when you're consulting clients, what are the key skills that you're really trying to, I guess, educate clients on? I'm assuming you're dealing with leadership teams and obviously just team members as well and trying to improve their, their awareness of this firstly, but then mm -hmm. probably some skill. What are some of the yeah. things you're kind of discussing and, and implementing? So my clients are generally businesses. So it's whether I'm talking to the whole organization, just a leadership team, a division, you know, it, it really depends what they're looking for. And so what I am looking at building are several things. So it's not only building awareness, hmm. most importantly, it's also shifting perception and it's shifting bias and it's updating opinions. It's also looking at fears. It's looking at assumptions. It's teaching people the value of self-assessment. And I am not talking about taxes. It's, hmm. it's looking at I can't even have this conversation until I take a good hard look at myself and what I think about it. So it's not only building awareness of the topic, it's building awareness of self and it's building that emotional intelligence piece, which is that, that self-awareness and also a bit of that self-management too. And on top of that, we're also building a lot of skills when it comes to intentional language choice. Oh my God, I cannot stress that enough that intentionality, when you talk about this and steering clear of things like hyperbole is incredibly important when you're talking about something so complex and potentially delicate and also teaching people. And I realize this sounds so rudimentary, but what good help actually looks like, not what they think it looks like and redefining what that process is. And also really teaching people, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but teaching people the moments to be solution oriented when it comes to these conversations and the moments to just listen and be with someone. And it's teaching them also the art of, and I don't wanna to sound too crunchy here, the mm -hmm. art of listening to their own intuition of what that conversation demands. And also, how do I say this? Having belief in themselves that they can be efficacious enough. I want to use all the big words now. Mm. Efficacious enough. I'll be Googling all these after. To, to be able to support somebody without being a trained therapist, you know? Yep. And yep. learning the art of triaging, learning when you're the best person to help them and when you're not. Mm. You know, th those are some of the top skills I'm teaching. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And I think for in the last year as well, like throughout, bless you, in within our um, business at Pinnacle and what we do, we do a lot of corporate uh, health and wellbeing programs, et cetera. But the big thing that we found and through different surveys and stuff is just lead it, like leaders not feeling confident in the topic, firstly, of, of mental health. And so yeah. they don't really understand it and they, they want to help, but they don't know really where to where to start, how to have the conversations. And so, yeah, it's really interesting just how you, you put that there for leaders to, to be able to have the confidence to do it. But I guess for that first step that you were talking about is that self-awareness. So really understanding oh, your own, yes. your biases, your beliefs and your fears, no doubt for a lot of leaders at the start of this, it would have just been like, I'm not trained for this and I'm scared because I don't know how to, how to manage this whole situation. 
Well, on top of that, I am also leading a very serious charge that when I work with businesses, I say, yes, leaders have their part. C-suite has their part to make a psychologically safe environment, role model, yada, yada, yada. But so does every team member in the business. Everybody's a chronologically aged adult. You can't just put this on leaders in C-suite and expect that they don't have their own stuff that they're dealing with in the background or that they don't need support. So I really look at it as I'm trying to level the playing field because people are still fallible humans first and their job title second. Mm. And so it is a different conversation when you're a leader opening it with a team member, but God forbid you let a team member support you when you're their boss. Who said they can't? So I'm really trying to level the playing field. And I'm conscious of the fact that there are power dynamics. The conversation will look different. That's why there's an entire chapter dedicated to that. But also I'm challenging these narratives that leaders are only supposed to support team members. Why can't it go both ways? And I will never forget, there was a workshop I was teaching, teaching leaders, this is a long time ago, teaching leaders how to have these conversations with their team members. And they said, well, what about us? What about supporting us? And, you know, I'm not even sure I'm comfortable doing this. And I was like, oh my God, I made a rookie mistake of assuming that because they were in leadership positions that they were ready for this. Hmm. And then I yeah, learned early. Yeah. Take that into account. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and if you flip it around the other way, it's an interesting discussion is the on the employee side. So you're right, everyone's a leader in their own in their own way, and everyone's a as a, as you said, a human and potentially uh, mature enough to um a, like adults working. It doesn't mean that they can't support each other or also support their you know, what we might say superior, you know, they're superiors, if, if you want to call it that. So how, how does yeah. that conversation look for the team members um, supporting each other or supporting leaders? What, what sort of things do you talk about there? Well, I think that it's important that if a team member clearly sees a leader is struggling and granted, this depends on the type of relationship, what type of rapport they have. There's lots of things. And you'll see this constantly in the book when I say, Please apply this to your unique situation. Please apply this to your unique situation because there's no mm. one size fits all, right? So if a leader seems like they're in distress, it's really the same guidance as a leader would say to a team member. People don't like to be told how they think or told how they feel. You want to say that you're noticing something, you're observing something. And because of those power dynamics, you want to add on in addition to sharing that I know you're my boss. We're also both adults and I am happy to support you if you need that or however you want to say it. But you got to remind them beyond the fact that they are your boss, that mm. they are also allowed to lean on you. So it has to be explicitly stated because oftentimes, and I've lost count, the number of times leaders have said to me, they're terrified of being seen as weak or incapable or some other unconscionable stereotype that is put on leaders that I'm desperately trying to smash. So sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and you gotta be explicit. So I tell people, be explicit, leave no room for confusion. And you know, in the space of assumptions is where people get screwed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a really great way of putting it though, is just that you, you, you definitely would have, in the last couple of years, there definitely would have been moments where leaders 
maybe wanted or needed to be vulnerable, but couldn't quite, couldn't quite get there for whatever reason, you know, and therefore their team members are noticing that they are burning out, um, but not knowing what to do. So yeah, that example's really, really interesting. And Melissa, with the, I'm kind of interested now in the future of work and kind of how you see it unfolding in, in Australia and no doubt everywhere else and where you are over there in, um, in Denver, like the, the current state of work is hybrid working or well, it is here anyway, especially for mm -hmm. knowledge Get workers. To. Yep. And you know, as if you fast forward in 10 years time, what is, what do you think it looks like from, a well, how businesses work, but also how mental health and this type of conversations work in that setting? So if we look at the world of work and how we work, we have been able to accomplish some pretty incredible things the last two and a half years. I became digital overnight and then my client base expanded around the globe. And what I notice is that lots of businesses, they also realized that this presenteeism in the office and feeling like can't trust people to be adults and, and to their jobs. And there are some people who will always try to get away with things or always be people who don't put their best foot forward and all those other phrases because that's human nature. Like, come on, there's always going to be folks like that. Generally speaking, people feel if you don't trust them. So in this hybrid environment, I think what actually increased is, is a lot of trust that even though we're not in the same space doesn't mean they don't trust you to do your job. So lots of businesses who sold their offices, they're permanently remote. You only have to come into the office once a week, you know, lots of different things. And then there's some businesses don't need to do this, but they're forcing that pe people to go back in the office. That is regression at its finest. <laughs> so yeah. we literally showed we don't need to do that. But because you like the old way better, that's what we're doing. Make no mistake. People need to be around each other. They do. I think that having some sort of hybrid of virtual and in-person is good. We should be around each other. However, 10 years from now, if there are, and again, this is very industry dependent, it's function dependent, any business that is mandating people to go into an office that literally don't need to be there 10 years from now. I don't see how they're going to keep their staff. And then if you look at the conversations, what I envision and I hope for, I am very clearly not trying to create a giant kumbaya circle in offices. That is not what needs to happen. However, people shouldn't feel they need to hide if they have a therapy appointment at four o'clock on their calendar. People shouldn't need to feel that they have to hide that they have depression and it doesn't mean that you have to share your entire mental health history and story with every single person in the office that's not right it's finding a balance between an open playing field and an ironclad wall not that everybody should feel obligated to talk about it but they should have the option to and while i deeply 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 appreciate and you heard me said it because this is literally recorded for people that say we're going to end the stigma going to end it. Hmm. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. There's 6.9 billion people on this planet. You really think that's possible? The goal is to reduce the stigma so much so that it becomes commonplace to no longer judge it. And the people that do 
are like the weird ones in the corner. <laughs> so yeah. the goal yeah. is to make understanding and acceptance around mental health a dominant global hegemony. That's the last mm -hmm. big word I'll use. That's the goal. So, yeah. but realistically within the human condition, because you can't say we're going to end this. Well, we thought we ended polio and then people are not taking vaccines and polio is coming back. So you see my point. Yeah, absolutely. You want to have a realistic goal, realistic steps, and feel as though 10 years from now, you're not going to not gonna have any hesitation to say if you have a illness state of your organ that is your brain. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And also if you, if you fast forward 10 years, it's kind of like, what's the, what's the population group in the workforce and what do they want? And these, you know, the current Gen Zers, I think is the right terminology they, they're coming, mm -hmm. they're coming through. And by, you know, in that time, they're going to be pretty much most of the workforce and mm -hmm. what they're really, what they're really after is that open dialogue, aren't they? And that understanding mm -hmm. and also that, that common goal of what are we working for in this organization? So there's that yeah. whole purpose alignment thing as well. And also a big old splash of individual accountability because mm -hmm. the workplace is responsible for creating a healthy and safe environment. It is not their job to manage your mental health. It's your job to manage your mental health. Mm -hmm. It has to be a collective effort and everybody needs to put on their big hip pants and do their part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Melissa, thanks so much. It's been a really interesting chat um, with you today, and it's awesome to uh, put a face to the book that I've got here in my hand. So um, <laughs> for those that are listening, I, I'll, I'll put the links in the show notes so you can review the book and, and check it out. Um, but Melissa, thanks so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another Well Workplaces podcast. If you've loved the show, it would be fantastic if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Or feel free to follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram and search Well Workplaces or my profile, Tom Bosner. The show is produced by Alice Hoyle and is made in my backyard cubby. If you would like to hear more about our exclusive events and more about the Well Workplaces community, feel free to email me directly at tom at wellworkplaces.com.au where I'd love you to tell me who I should interview in the future podcasts and also tell me what you've loved most about the show. This podcast is really built on community input and built on the aspiration of inspiring healthy change in every workplace. Thanks for listening.